Abuse makes its ugly presence felt in all kinds of ways and places. Fortunately, the curtain is being pulled back to expose the secretive and destructive world of abuse in our culture. Alarmingly, there's been a secretive world of abuse in the church as well, and it's a good thing that this is being exposed. What forms does power take? How is power abused, particularly in the church? And how should we respond to abuses of power? Stick with us as we shed light on the dark world of abuse as we converse with Dr. Diane Langberg about her new book, Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse, on this episode of Youth Culture Matters. From the Center for Parent Youth Understanding, this is Youth Culture Matters. If you're a parent, youth worker, educator, counselor, grandparent, or anyone else who cares about kids, we're glad you've joined us for this practical, informative, and hope-filled podcast. This is a place where together we talk and think Christianly about the rapidly changing world of today's children, teens, and young adults. Well, welcome, everybody, to another episode of Youth Culture Matters. I'm Walt Mueller here at CPYU, and Chris Wagner's in the studio with us, as always. We have our intern, Theodora Dillman, who's joining us as well, and then Jason Soshinek, our co-host, joining us from Spokane. I want to let everybody know that today's podcast is one that I'm very excited about because of our guest, Dr. Diane Langberg. And Before we actually welcome her here, I want to tell you a little bit about her, why we're having her on here. Uh, A little bit of her background, she is 45 years into doing clinical work as a psychologist, a lot of that with trauma victims. She has traveled the globe training caregivers in responding to trauma and the abuse of power, which we will be talking about today. And she has a counseling practice in Jenkintown, Pennsylvania. Whenever I mention Jenkintown, I have to say two things. Uh, one is that that's where I grew up, and that's where her practice is. Uh, but there's there's another added little trivia uh, matter there for our pop culture junkies. And I don't know, Diane, if you know this or not, but are you familiar with the television show The Goldbergs? There's an act. She's not. There's actually a uh, a sitcom that's been on for several years about an actual family in Jenkintown and their home where it sits is probably about three blocks from your office right over in your Abington <laughs> Friends School. So now I just educated you a little bit in, in some pop culture, uh, which is most likely absolutely meaningless with everything else you had to think about. Uh, but that's Jenkintown. So Diane has written several books. Uh, Lisa and I have known her for over 30 years. Some of her books are very, very helpful to us. Uh, Counsel for Pastors' Wives, a book called Counseling Survivors of Sexual Abuse, uh, a book called On the Threshold of Hope, another one for counselors uh, called In Our Lives First. It's Meditations for Counselors. And then a book we had Diane on to talk about one of our past episodes, uh, an excellent book, Suffering and the Heart of God, How Trauma Destroys and Christ Restores. She's also working as a co-leader of the Global Trauma Recovery Institute, which is uh, housed at Biblical Theological Seminary, and she's on the board of Godly Response to Abuse in a Christian Environment, and she also serves as a co-chair uh, for American for the American Bible Society's Trauma Advisory Council. You can learn about all these things 
and more about Diane if you go to her website, dianelangberg.com. What, uh, there's so much that I appreciate about Diane and her work. I think first and foremost is, and you'll hear this today, folks, that she loves Christ, she loves the church, and I think out of the overflow of both of those loves, you will hear some difficult things that sometimes are piercing to us, things that we need to hear that force us to look in the mirror and deal with our own sin and our own lives, and I really believe she is a gift uh, to the church. So, Diane, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. So I want to talk, we're going to talk today specifically about this latest book of yours called Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church, and it's published by Brazos. It caught my attention first and foremost because you wrote it, and we're thinking about these issues, but also uh, it, it got a great endorsement from Rachel Denhollander, who is a, a person who's, who's written extensively on this as well. Her book is gripping. Uh, what is a girl worth? I think is what the yeah. What is a girl worth? We've read that as well. Um, I want to I want to read this because I think this is a good start to the conversation. Right out of the gate in this latest book of yours, Redeeming Power, in the prelude, you write these words. This is the first paragraph. Decades ago, when I first encountered victims of sexual abuse, I found myself in a foreign land. I did not know how such things happened. It was not part of my experience, nor was it mentioned once in the psychological literature I read or while I earned two graduate degrees. The church dismissed me when I brought it up. I decided by God's grace to listen to the unbelieved and disenfranchised. Doing so has changed me and shaped my life. So the question is, you know, how has listening in this way changed and shaped your life? Well, that's probably a very full answer that I can't uh, do in its entirety. But um, first of all, it, it put me in, in the position of student. I started uh, working with this when I had a master's degree. I was all of, what, 23, I think. Um, I was working on my PhD. And you go into the field young and you're going to help everybody and <laughs> all those kinds of things. And I realized that I, I needed teachers and the teachers were my clients. And one in particular, which I, I mentioned in the prelude, whose life was unthinkable, unspeakable. Um, she was an incest survivor of many perpetrators and also had been trafficked long before trafficked was a word. Um, and I, I still remember the day I said to her, I don't know anything about this. I don't know how to help you. I have to be your student and you have to be my teacher. And then we'll hobble along together and see what we can figure out. Mm. And she, courageous, terrified soul that she was, agreed. And so she began little by little to tell me her story and let me ask questions, not even so much in the guise of helping her, though I learned later that that's exactly what helps. Is going with and listening helps, um, because then somebody's no longer alone in the darkness. Um, but I learned from her what it was like, what it did to a human being, 
what it did to the abusers, um, how family members reacted, how a church reacted. And after that, there were many, many more. And she was the basis for my figuring out how to enter into those ways. What I didn't know at the time was that God was using her and hundreds like her over the years to actually teach me about who he is and his entrance into life with the least of these and the disenfranchised. And I began to understand him in a way that I had never seen before and continue to do so. Hmm. so some of what you described there, and I've heard you tell this story before about engaging with her, is you know, you, you, you assumed a posture of learning. And so many times, and I think about people who are not professionally trained counselors, I think in terms of, you know, many times just pastors and youth workers where we encounter a student or a young person or an older person who has experienced something horrific as you describe, and we want to step in, we want to fix it, we want to have something to say right away. And I just want to dwell on that for a second because just to, to pause and say, teach me, and I know you've used the phrase, uh, tell me what it's like to be you. Yes. That's just so helpful. Any Anything you can direct us with on that in terms of a posture when we, and more and more of us are encountering this because, you know, these issues are rising to the surface now and, and I, at least my understanding is people may be a little more ready to talk about this as the culture is, is moving forward with this and giving people permission you know just that initial contact when we learn any any advice you can give us those who are listening on how to engage beyond what you've just said I mean I think that's brilliant what you just said well I think it requires a lot of humility and bending when somebody comes for help and we genuinely want to help I mean it it but we also want it to go away, if we're honest, particularly things that were so outrageous as what she brought me. Um, they aren't neat little problems. You know, she, she was never going to be all better, and she wasn't all better. She's all better now. She's in heaven. But it, it's, not, it's not that kind of thing. And so it means living with not being able to fix it. Hmm. And we don't like that. And... Part of the way we dress it up is by using spiritual language. You know, well, if you just prayed more, you did this, or love God more, or something, this bad thing wouldn't be. Well, Jesus was flawless, and the bad thing was. <laughs> That's not the model. Yeah. We've made it the model, and we've done it partly because it makes us feel better, because then the fact that the person isn't all better or is telling us things that we just don't even know how to think about, so therefore we want not to believe because it'll help us be okay, you know, we end up silencing, rejecting, um, speeding along, and not understanding that little by little walking with, which is what God in the flesh did. He put one foot in front of another with broken human beings. And they weren't all fine when he left. Hmm. I want to I I talk a little bit about, you know, in the book, basically, as I, I read the book and we've talked to people about the book, uh, 
you're really shifting the paradigm for us from a paradigm of response, and I would even say abuse, in the church and in families and elsewhere. Uh, you're shifting the paradigm from something that it should not be to something that it, it should be and it must be. And in, as I think about that, just to go back to that prelude, there were three phrases in there that really jumped out at me, and, and I want to ask you about them one at a time. You know, the, I, just very quickly, just respond to this. You, you said it was not it was not part of your experience, but it wasn't mentioned once in any of the psychological literature as you were being trained as a yeah. as a counselor. What was yes. going on? Well, I started seeing people probably around 1973. The feminist movement was going on, um, and little by little, we people were starting to talk about rape at that time. But the only thing in the psychological literature was Freud, who listened to women's stories of sexual abuse and was so overwhelmed by it, he decided they made it up, and then he made stuff up about it to make it palatable. So there was no other literature. It was beginning to leak out during the feminist movement. And I, I had the great fortune of having a supervisor at that time who um, was a generation above me and who was helping to start Women Organized Against Rape in Philadelphia, which was unheard of. So. Th there wasn't anything to read or whatever. And, and keep in mind also, I was also seeing Vietnam vets. And so there weren't women in my field. I was weird. <laughs> and the Vietnam vets were coming for help and there was no diagnosis of PTSD. It wasn't even in the books yet. It became a diagnostic category in 1980. So we didn't understand trauma at all. Hmm. let alone in females who were traumatized in other circumstances. Yeah. Let me, let me ask you about this second phrase, the church dismissed me. That's part of your experience. And, and I know that happened then, but I also hear stories of this now. Yes. It, just talk about the church, how we <laughs> failed in this. I know we don't have the whole day, but <laughs> that's why you wrote the book, right? Right. Well, I learned over time, and I, I feel very strongly about this, to differentiate between the church as an external system, which is how we typically think of it, and the church as the body of Jesus Christ. They're not the same. There's all kinds of people in the system who actually aren't part of the body, and they don't follow their head. I learned that the body of Jesus has cancer. And it's not being treated. And it's like ha having a lump on your back and saying, well, you know, it, it can't be cancer and, and I'll be okay and ignoring it. And, and, you know, then eventually you're dead. We've done that in the church with things that disrupt our ways, our form of worship, the way we want to think about Sundays or what church is like or what we're called to do or all of those things. But the fact of the matter is that bodies that don't follow their heads are sick. Hmm. Something's wrong with the connection. 
And so I stuck my toe in the water a few times early on with pastors or something about women who were sexually abused in the church by somebody or who were being treated violently in their homes and was talked down to. Now, Diane, you know, women sometimes tell these stories and your job is not to get hooked by them because you you know this they, they like the drama they they want the attention and you won't help them if you do that so I shut up well <laughs> I didn't tell them anymore yeah and, and even with the with the advances in understanding and and knowledge and the willingness of people to speak up and tell the truth that this is still uh, an issue in the church right just Absolutely. That response you just described. Yes. It doesn't happen in Christian families. It doesn't happen in Christian churches. So, so yes, it happens in the world, but not where, not where we are. You, you misunderstood how you can understand the misunderstand the rape of a six year old. I'm not sure, but you, you misunderstood was said a lot to me. One of the things that I've been curious for a long time is whether or not our rates of abuse, of uh, trauma, are the same today as they were when you began your profession back in the early 70s, or if they really are increasing. Um, One of the things I've always wondered about is whether or not people just didn't have a place to be able to share their abuse, their trauma, um, back back when you had started your profession. And today, I'm, I'm hearing more and more of those stories. I'm just wondering if those stories always were there and we just never heard them or if stories really are increasing around a, abuse around trauma well the short answer is i don't know but i'll give you some thoughts anyway that never stopped me <laughs> you're like us that's great <laughs> um just so you know that, that to the best of our knowledge at this point one in four females one in six males are sexually abused before age 18 now, that's what we know. You know, there's a lot of four-year-olds and six-year-olds and eight-year-olds running around that haven't told anybody, not to mention 16-year-olds and whatever. We're hearing more because it's there are places to talk about it. And it isn't even that there are places to talk about it that are safe like the church. There are some like that, but there's still there's a long way to go. But, I mean, you think of things like me, too. You know, there's a place where people are not only safe, but they actually get it. So lots of people are talking that wouldn't be talking. It doesn't change the numbers. It may change our knowledge of the numbers. If you're aware of the whole mess with the Boy Scouts, you know, they they just bumped that number up to 90,000. And they bumped it up because more are coming forward. They were always there but they didn't speak. And we have no way of measuring who hasn't spoken. But given the vulnerability of people who are victimized, whether they're children or vulnerable in other ways, they're they're always going to be perpetrators who feed on on the vulnerable. That's part of what the human race does. And we've been doing it since Eden. So I don't know whether it's more or less. I know it's a lot, 
And I know we still don't fully know. Yeah. You, oh, go ahead, Jason. Well, there is there is something that I, I, I you you uh, discuss, and it's around the vulnerable uh, in the church, and the the dynamic of uh, the church is supposed to be a sanctuary for the vulnerable, but it becomes a sanctuary for the powerful. Um, and and so I, I, I you're kind of engaging in some of that, and I would love you to go a little bit further with that, with regards to that very statement. Well, if you think of the scriptural narrative, the church, the people, are lambs. And the scriptures are very clear that there are wolves. And it's also very clear that the wolves come in the pens where the lambs are. And I don't think... We don't like to be vulnerable human beings, and we don't like to think of the people around us as being vulnerable, and we like to sing songs that are triumphant. Not that triumph isn't part of our faith, it is. She's not here yet. <laughs> but when you look at the people that fled to Jesus, they are the vulnerable ones. They're the ones who had no power. The ones who had power didn't like him very much. And, 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 and the synagogue there, the temple in Jerusalem, protected those who had the power. It makes us feel good. We're the big people. We're the right people. We're doing this thing well. We know the right answers. We figured it out. If you tell us your story, you mess that up. So be quiet and go away. And so... I, I think that dynamic was there then, and it was there in Jeremiah's time, and it's going to be here till the end. You know, but I think the call to the church is we follow a vulnerable Savior, and we're called to be like him. And we should never, in the midst of his place that is existing in his name, suffer wolves, protect wolves name what they're doing something else so it's palatable that's mm. diametrically opposed to the character of our god to do that yeah yeah i've heard you speak multiple times and talking about sheep and wolves it's very effective we're going to take a break when we come back i really want to start to ask some questions about wolves and recognizing wolves because it seems that we don't really understand who the wolves are till the story hits the internet or the newspaper and and i'd love to hear about that because ultimately you know warnings about wolves are helpful and and i think even you know we are sinful broken people and to be able to look inside and and to see you know the the wolf inside let's say with our sin that rears its ugly head uh, we have to reckon with that and uh, so when we come back, we'll, we'll spring off. We'll talk about that. We're talking to Dr. Diane Langberg about her new book, Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church. We'll be right back. Youth workers, are you looking for ways to continue your ministry to parents during these difficult days where parent ministry is more necessary than ever before? Would you like to bring CPYU to your church in spite of COVID-induced limitations on travel and gatherings? 
I would love to come to your church in a personal, live, real-time, virtual format. We are now offering several different one-hour seminar options, including Q&A, you can now book at a time that is most convenient for you and your parent group. Participants can join as they gather in one place together or from their own homes. You can learn more about these seminar options by visiting our website at cpyu.org and clicking on the link for the virtual parent seminars. We have a limited number of dates still available during 2020 and through the spring of 2021. Remember to learn more and to book a CPYU virtual parent seminar go to cpyu.org. Well, welcome back to Youth Culture Matters. We're talking to Diane Langberg about uh, abuse and power in the church. And before the break, she was talking about uh, sheep and wolves and recognizing sheep and wolves. And I want to pursue the wolves, if we can, for a little bit, Diane, because recognizing this is important it feels to me like or it seems to me that it's almost like a a week doesn't go by now that there isn't some story about somebody who's well known sometimes a celebrity pastor who has been outed for being a wolf and for preying on uh, typically women in the church we've we've seen it go uh, the other direction as well Um, you know in terms of sometimes women in power in the church. It's certainly not, at least to my knowledge, not as uh, prevalent at all. But we hear these high, these, you know, these high-level stories of people who you would expect. But then there's the stories that, about the unknown people. And a lot of times in our world of youth ministry and, and youth work, we hear these stories. One just came out. It's been on my mind and really eating at me for the last three or four weeks. A story came out about a youth pastor, a young youth pastor, who uh, just across the river there in New Jersey from Philadelphia, who was found out for soliciting, I think, videos from young boys. And, you know, your heart breaks when you read this, and you read that this person has a wife and has little girls, little daughters, and you're just wondering, what what is the dynamic here? I know I know we, we need to understand sin, uh, but Give us some advice here. I and and what I'd love to hear first is, you know, how do we start to identify this? What what contributes to this? Are we actually feeding this in the way that we elevate certain certain people and put them in power? And then also, you know, what would you say to us, especially to younger youth workers who are just getting started? I, I think words of warning that would help us understand our sinful tendencies to direct us away from this, you know, to, to, to lead us to our head in the church and to really follow Christ in this, in obedience. I hope that's a clear question. My, this stuff makes my head spin. One. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're right. You're right. You're, please don't call me out like that. Every... <laughs> We're very good actually, at asking more actually, than one question. That's, one that's question. right. Yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. I, I'm I'm thinking out loud here, and I want you to respond. It wasn't a question. Respond to my statement. Pick a question. Any. Yeah, question. that's good. We'll spin the wheel. Well, let me go back to the beginning, which I do this in the book a lot. You know, we have we have human beings in a garden, and everything's perfect. There are no wolves, and a wolf shows up. Only he doesn't look like a wolf. He's an angel of light. 
And he basically says, you want to be like God? And the answer is yes. They were created in his image. There's a longing to be like him. It's a good and proper longing. Okay, well, the way you can be like him is taking this thing over here that he said not to take. He didn't really mean it. And it will help you be more like him. We've been doing that ever since. So we are we are easily deceived creatures. And we are in the Christian world particularly deceived by Christian language. <clears throat> and so if you use Christian language, I assume goodness. And you know, youth pastor or head pastor, whatever, you know, I'm exhausted. We just had a new baby. My wife isn't paying any attention. I'm struggling with depression. You're such a good listener. I can't tell you what being with you means to me. It's like a breath of fresh air. Well, guess what's going to happen? And it's going to happen because the pastor in that instance is already feeding off the sheep. Uh, he's hungry and he needs to pay attention to that. And there are reasons for his hunger and he needs to pay attention to that. But he's already feeding emotionally off the sheep. And the sheep feel special. Somehow they have something that will help the shepherd, which will help everybody. How can that be bad? So what you have is hunger, often for good things, or you have wounding because life does that to us and people reaching out to care for those wounds or to feed that hunger and deception. What I'm doing is no big deal. I just told a parishioner that I'm tired and what's wrong with that? Well, ostensibly nothing, but it's a step on a path. And that deception is, I did an okay thing. And so rather than saying, oh my gosh, I'm really hungry because the fact that I did that with somebody that isn't that doesn't have that role in my life is an indicator and I need to get some help. I need to drag it to the light and get some help. That's often what we don't do because we're hungry and it made us feel better. It's like a drug. So we want it again. And, you know, by and large, there are always exceptions in human nature, but by and large, people don't wake up in the morning and decide to have affairs with six women in the church. I mean, it doesn't happen like that. It's little by little, inch by inch, painted with deception that we can accept. You know, God's blessed us. We have 3,000 people in the church. Look what he's done. It's going well. I don't want people to know that I'm feeling this way because it won't be helpful to them. You know, they're rejoicing in what's happening. And then you start to isolate. So part of it is, at least in terms of churches, shepherds forget that they're just sheep. They're not really the shepherd. They work for the shepherd. Mm. And so we we think of people in leadership in the Christian world as separate from everybody else. And as soon as you do that, as soon as a sheep is separate from the flock, it's dead. That's what wolves do. Yeah. 
And we do it little by little, emotionally and in our heads, and then in our actions. And then all of a sudden, I, I can't tell you how many pastors I've had sit on my couch over the decades, weeping and saying, I don't know how I got here. As you, as you have talked to pastors over the years, and obviously, you know, you're, you're counseling after uh, they've gotten themselves through their decision-making in a mess. And I know that you've talked to folks in preventive ways as well. What would you say to people in ministry, I mean, just people in general, about the borders and boundaries that we can build into our lives, the healthy, good habits that we can build into our lives that would keep us from making decisions that indicate we've believed the enemy's lies, you know. And, and I always, when you go back to the garden, when everybody goes back, I always think about what the question that was asked, did God really say, mm-hmm. you know, which is that question that the enemy asks all the time now, but what what are some good borders and boundaries that we can build into our lives? Well, going back a little further than that, I think anybody who's going to be in leadership, like a pastor or something like that, or head of organization or whatever, those things should be studied from the first day they hit the ground in seminary or wherever they go to school to learn those things. We don't teach character issues. We don't teach frailty. We don't teach how deception is used by people who are fired up for Jesus. We don't. And so they, people get sent out with knowledge and eagerness and all those things, and their wounds have never been looked at. You know, so just as an example, you think of a man who had a father who was just harsh and verbally abusive and maybe beat him and his brothers or whatever. And there's a wounded boy in there that nobody ever talked to. And so now he's going to be the pastor of 4,000 people. And he's bigger than his daddy, only he's not sure because he never did it really right. And his father was never pleased. So maybe he's not doing it right. So he has to drive himself further. And he still doesn't understand what's going on inside of him until he's so tired and weak and hungry that he starts looking elsewhere, which which isn't necessarily a woman. It could be a man. It could be a child. It could be money. It could be fame. It could be all kinds of things. But, it, you know, he wants feeding, and he doesn't understand why. Mm. So I, I think we have failed. If ultimately God's desire is for us to be like Christ, then our teaching and our educating and all of those things have to include that as central. We make knowledge central. And knowledge without Christ-likeness is very dangerous. There, There is a, a w- one of the things I'm wondering about is just the healthy display of power and authority, specifically within the church. And and I'm also, as I'm, I'm hearing you talk, I'm hearing about the aspect of vulnerability. It's a conversation I've had with multiple youth pastors and senior pastors. And there, it's, it's an ongoing dialogue about whether or not it's okay for someone in that leadership role to be vulnerable. And I'm, I'm wondering, as I think about healthy displays of power and authority, if vulnerability is one of those, 
or if it's not, or if it's in safe places, what that might look like. Well, it's, I mean, you can't just stand up in front of a huge congregation and start talking about it. That's Correct. not good for you or them. And, you know, it'll make a big mess. Um, <laughs> but I, I've known groups of pastors who have faithfully met with each other on a regular basis for years and a place where they can speak the truth and also a place where somebody will, you know, kick them to get help if they need something other than that group. Um, nothing is, is foolproof. You can lie to anybody. You, know? you can get yourself to look good to yourself and everybody else and not be good. So th there is no solution that will fix it. Not here. But there are things that will strengthen us in the battle of deception, which infects every human being, and in the feeding off of the authority that I am granted in my position and having that tell me I'm okay. So therefore, everything has to be okay with that work, because if it's not, then I'm not okay. You know, it's all those kinds of things that we need to learn about, be vigilant about how old wounds growing up infect us now and safe people who will get in our face and ask us questions. But, but again, you know, I've known somebody who was in a group like that for years and everybody thought it was wonderful and he ended up caught in New York City picking up young men. Mm. Nobody knew. Yeah, there, there comes a point where when you're in a group like that, you know, obviously you have to you have to be honest, right? Uh, one thought that came to mind, and I'd love to hear your response to this, and, you know, Jason, you asked a question about this, but as we get in these groups, I'm thinking about youth workers in particular. Youth workers tend in those groups to congregate together. So it's a lot of like-minded people in the same kind of ministry situation, often most of them very young. If you get the average age of people in that group, you know, they're young, maybe under 30. Would it be helpful? I mean, I, respond to this. Would it be helpful when you're in a group like that to make sure that it is a, a good mix, let's just say men, uh, age-wise uh, across the spectrum? So you're getting older men in there who have a lot more life experience, uh, maybe some more spiritual maturity, I hope and trust, and a lot more wisdom to be able to work within like that fuller spectrum of the of the the body of Christ, rather than just you know like-minded, same-aged people. Have you seen that happen? Is that would that be good advice? Yes, it would be good advice, and you don't have to pick one or the other. Yeah. But if everybody you talk to is exactly like you, you're not going to get any new ideas. <laughs> you're not going to get scrutiny. You're not going to get, you know, you've been talking like that for the last three months. And it's, you know, peers aren't very good at that with each other. They're better at encouraging. They're better at applauding. They're, they're better at feeling better about themselves because the other person is doing the same thing. So it has to be a variety of things. Um, there's not, there isn't one way. But the bottom line is we are all steeped in deception as human beings. 
that's been in us since the garden, it's not going to go away from anybody. And so we have to learn to reckon, re reckon with that as a truth about who we are as humans and make choices throughout our lives that fight against that. Mm. Knowing sometimes we won't win, but we're sure going to go down fighting. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a break. And before we take the break, I just want to say that anything we mention here on the podcast, as we always do in terms of resources, Chris will, on our homepage at cpyu.org, for the player for this page underneath, he will list everything, including links to Diane's uh, website, dianelangberg.com, and then also uh, links to her books and other resources. And I want to mention that one of the great things on the Internet right now, you know, YouTube and podcasts and things like that, Diane has a wealth there. I mean, all you have to do is put her name into YouTube, and you are going to get some, some great uh, opportunities to learn from her. There's some, some wonderful teaching videos on there. Lisa and I have had a chance to sit in on some of her seminars, and I will tell you they are excellent. They are worth going through as a church staff. They're worth going through if you're a youth pastor with your volunteer staff, and so we'll include the, the links to some of those as well. So just check that out at cpyu.org, and we'll be right back. If you enjoy listening to Youth Culture Matters and would like to support the ongoing efforts of this ministry, you can do so by visiting cpyu.org giving to make a donation. Your prayers and financial support make this podcast possible. Thanks again for listening to Youth Culture Matters. We are here with Dr. Diane Langberg. We've been talking about her uh, most recent book, Redeeming Power. And uh, I, I, as we turn the page into our, our last segment, one of the things I, I would love to be able to, to look at is um, how we've historically silenced or even questioned victims of abuse. I, I know that we were discussing this earlier uh, in the podcast and I think coming back to that, it's going to be um, important for us to engage because I, the, the question that, that I am curious about is how um, do we become helpful, passionate in helping victims of abuse rediscover their worth? Well, within a church setting, one of the first things you can do is just put it on the table. I mean, you don't, you don't know who's been abused in your youth groups and things like that that have never spoken. I can't tell you what it does for victims to hear somebody just put it in a list, even. I mean, just, you know, some people struggle with X, Y, and Z, and Q, and whatever, and that's one of the letters. It, it means that the person who's speaking knows that it's real. They accept that it's true for people. And it's so real and so true that it can be said publicly. It's not one of those shush-shush words, you know, which it usually is. That in itself is a gift. You may not get the overflow of that. They may not come to you. They may go to somebody else five years later. But So you may not see the fruit of that. But to not acknowledge that in a youth group, you've got kids who have been sexually abused. You've got kids who have been abused in 
different ways, including sexual abuse in the home or in their extended family, just statistically. It's, that's, and they need to know. And they need to know that if they ever want to tell their story, they're welcome to do so. You know, that the staff or whoever wants to be a safe place for them to tell their story. Um, that it takes a lot of courage to do that. And you would honor that courage. The other thing they probably need to know is you won't force them to do anything. <laughs> if you got a minor, that's a different problem, obviously. Um, but part of what you want to give back to a victim is agency as much as possible. And there are laws about minors that prevent us from doing that in some ways, but you can still shape that in as part of it. Um, but it's their voice that you want to resurrect. It's their thoughts. It's their choices, their power, so to speak. Um, and so just putting that on the table periodically in the things you talk about uh, makes it real, makes it makes them know that you know it's real and makes it something that you're able to talk about publicly. So probably you could stand listening to what I have to say. Oftentimes, and you, you write about this in the book, we've heard this, you know, countless stories now, we know it's real, that when allegations of abuse are first verbalized, many times the church comes to the defense and rallies around the alleged perpetrator, who is probably the real perpetrator, which is incredibly harmful. I can't even imagine, you know, what that does to a, to a victim. So you, you've been very helpful in exposing that, and I think a lot of the stories that we've heard recently have really helped us understand, you know, the need to listen to the victim and surround victims. But there still needs to be care, and you do talk about this. I've heard you talk about this for uh, a perpetrator at some level. Would you talk, Lisa and I heard you, uh, when you were down at Springton Lake Presbyterian Church and we sat in on your uh, conversation there, you talked about uh, how a church should and should not engage uh, or, or allow a perpetrator to engage with the, bo with the local body. And we still talk about some of what you said there that we just thought was, was brilliant advice about a perpetrator's place in the church. I mean, you know, wh however that looks. Um, and I know that's very complex and people may not understand exactly what I'm asking there, but you talked about, you know, like they should not be in, in worship, but there should mm -hmm. be an opportunity to minister to them. Can you unpack that a little bit? Sure. Uh, before I do, I think it's a blog on my website that's about responding to abusers. So people could get more uh, and detailed information there. Um, I think what I would start with is the fact that the church has failed to love the abuser. Again, you, you go back to cancer. If, if there's somebody in the church that has cancer all over their body and doesn't want to get any care, what's the most loving thing you can do? You try to get them to get help. You don't just say God loves them and it's fine. <laughs> we want to say God forgives and you need to forgive too and everything's fine. It isn't fine because it came from a deceptive heart and mind 
that has grown hard over the years or it wouldn't have perpetrated against a six or 12 year old girl. There's a sickness there. It's also a crime. You know, I, I've often said at pastor's conferences, if, if you go to work on Tuesday morning and you open your study door and there's a dead body on the floor, what are you gonna do? Well, they all say they'll call the police. Oh, why? Because it's a crime. Well, guess what? A 12-year-old girl in your office who says, my uncle so-and-so, who's your lead elder, just did this to me, and you don't call the police, and it's a crime, you have now done something illegal. <laughs> so we don't get that, number one. Two, again, the infrastructure in the abuser is killing him or her. And we are not facing that. So he cries, he says he's sorry, we want the victim to say they forgive them, and then everything's fine. But if, let's again take the, the abuser of minors, okay, so now he's forgiven, he can come to church, and he's going to stand in the pew and sing the songs and read the scriptures and listen to the pastor and be feeding off of every child in that church with his eyes and his brain, and nobody will know. And they have put him in a position of no care that allows him to destroy himself further. That's not what love looks like. So, you know, I often suggest that churches meet with the abuser separate from the sanctuary for the sake of the abuser. There's no children in the house. There's no children anywhere, especially with a pedophile like that. You know, you just... You protect them from their disease in hopes that there can be healing over a very long, slow time. That's good. Let, let me shift here. And uh, since the book is about redeeming power, are you able to give us a, a, a definition of power that would be helpful for us in terms of how you're talking about power here? And then what are some of the ways that we do abuse our power in the church? Is, let's think specifically about leaders. Well, power is basically just having some kind of impact. And I start the book out with the infant just brought home from the hospital who cries in the middle of the night and has the power to raise up two adults who are exhausted and want nothing but sleep out of bed to go and take care of the infant. That's a lot of power. <laughs> And so power means what I do affects you. So we all have it. We all misuse it. <laughs> and most of us don't understand it very well. So there's very various kinds, and they're talked about in the book. Uh, one is position. You know, if you're the CEO, you've got power. If you're the pastor, you've got power. One is knowledge. If you know more theologically, you can do circles around other people, or if you know more about engineering or whatever it is. Uh, there is emotional power. If you know how to use your facial expressions, your words and other things to disrupt, to shame, whatever, or to help somebody flourish, you have <laughs> emotional power. We have economic power that is often used and misused. And that's part of the whole church stuff that we're reading about is the economic power that's been abused. Um, 
so and there's more kinds than that obviously physical power that's you know if you weigh 245 pounds somebody else weighs 75 the the big guy's got the power so most people have power in multiple ways and human nature uh, uses power to take care of self that's what we do whereas if we look at the life of Christ, who says all power is his. So whatever I've got is a derivative of his. It's actually not mine. He gave it to me to use on his behalf. So all power is his, and it is to be used on his behalf, manifesting his character so that human beings are blessed and flourish as God intended in the beginning. Do you find that in today's world we are uniquely suited through uh, technology, social media, the ability? You know, we have 11, 12-year-old kids now who their their main goal in life is to become a YouTube influencer. You know, make lots of money, get lots of followers, influence a lot of a lot of people. I think that's power. Do you find that? Our world today is uniquely suited to provide us with avenues to pursue power and the abuse of power. And maybe that's played into a lot of what we're seeing with quote-unquote celebrity pastors who just get the following. You know, that feeds the ego, right? I just asked a hundred questions again. I'm sorry. That's okay. Uh, I'm getting used to it. Send me the bill. Uh, <laughs> um, yes, it, it's also a distance from the power that you're abusing. So you can put something up on social media that can influence thousands or millions of people. But you don't have to listen to the outcome. If you don't like it, you erase it. You don't have to live with them. You don't get their feedback, really not living together in the flesh as part of a body or a marriage or whatever it is. And so I think the danger increases increases exponentially because you have huge power. And the more you seem to have, so let's say by number of followers, the more other people are drawn in. So it, it feeds off itself, it grows. And there's there's no true human feedback you know, it's very spotty when it happens. And so the the idea of self-examining what you just threw out there to a million people is is not happening. We're not very good at that anyway, even when somebody's sobbing in front of us because we just socked them. <laughs> so if we're not good at, you know, it's very, very easy to learn to wield that power and not feel anything, which is terrifying. How about redeeming power? I mean, that's what the book is about ultimately. And at the end, in the last couple of chapters, you really work to unpack that. Help us understand, you know, as people in ministry, as parents, what's the best way to use power redemptively? Well, I I think part of it is that humans think of power as an external thing its words, its actions, its outcomes, it's all of those things. 
but the way that the scriptures talk about power and the way that it is manifest in the person of Jesus Christ is that it is internal. It is, it is internal and it is expressed according to the character of God. Which means if I have redeeming power in my life, I will grow in humility. I will grow in compassion. I will learn how to bend down for the least of these and do it with kindness and respect. You know, it's funny, you hear about these big mega pastors and their failures and everything blew up and everything. You never hear anybody say they were so kind. You, you go back to Galatians and the fruit of the Spirit. That's the fruit of redemptive power. It's the character that Jesus exhibited. His gentleness, his goodness, his self-control. Imagine that. <laughs> he managed himself. So he who had all power, self-control. So we, I think in many ways that the church has lost its way and become an external thing. We protect our individual institution, we protect our positions, we protect our denomination, we protect our reputations and all of those things. It didn't look like any of that in Jesus. I mean, his reputation was shot. He sat down with all the wrong people. Women, no, no less, for goodness sakes. Foreign women. That's about as low as you can get. Lepers. And so we have built these big mega things and they have power and thousands of people come and all of that. But, but looking like him and bending like him in a way that causes and encourages the flourishing of human beings is not typically our mission. And I think we're breaking the heart of God Yeah, one of the things you say in the book, and I've heard this stated in other ways from others, is you say if an earthly kingdom was the goal, then Jesus is an utter failure. Yes. Yes, he is still. Yeah, yeah. And and then I think about the church today. You know, we just I just had a conversation with a youth worker yesterday where, you know, he's at a very small church. He, he He's led as he's on the youth ministry forums and things to— feel less than because he's at a small place he doesn't have a lot of kids he doesn't have a, a big budget and he's he's doing youth ministry in a world that works very hard to convince us as we look around that it's the metrics you know yes. it's the numbers that are the yes. the goal of success and i uh, boy that just steers us so wrong because i think when we get into that when we get wrapped up in that we start to pursue that rather than the heart of god we move away from the scriptures we lose our ability to see things with discerning eyes, you know, to look at the world through uh, eyes of faith and from the perspective perspective of a biblical world and life view, and it, it just it just sucks us in, and 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 then we hear some of the outcome of that is hearing these stories that we're that we're talking about today. Jason, any any other questions you might have or or thoughts here as we start to wrap up and wind down? Uh, I don't. I think this has been 
an incredible conversation. I think it's going to be really useful. Yeah, and, and you know, what I'm thinking here is that we have just skimmed the surface of something that, I mean, you talk about systemic issues. I know mm-hmm. that that's a big part of, 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 you know, what you talk about and how you counsel and certainly what you write about in the book. Um, it, you know, we want a good system. We want a redeemed system. And listening for a few minutes to a podcast really isn't going to take us there, but it can start us on that journey. And that's where I really want to recommend that folks read what you've written, Diane, not just here in this book, Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church, but to go back to your other books and even those things that you've uh, put up there on the internet. I, You know, I, there are certain voices, I'm, I'm going to say, I don't say this about everybody, but there are certain voices that God's given us in the church that come with a great experience and wisdom born out of experience and and a heart for for the Lord that we need to listen to especially in this time that we're in right now and and I truly believe uh, your voice is one of those so I'm I'm grateful that you're speaking you're I'm grateful that you're writing I'm grateful that you're continuing uh, to speak and to write and we'll encourage you to continue to do that any parting words for those who are listening? And I'm thinking especially of youth workers today who listen into this podcast. Well, one is more of a, a practical response to the youth pastor you were just talking about a few minutes ago. It doesn't occur to him and may not occur to anyone to tell him that perhaps the smallness of his world is his gift from God. Number one, it is protection unless he lets it derail him because it's, he sees it as negative. And number two, it will give him insight and relationship with these young people that might be more than they get from their parents or from any teacher or anybody else. So it can be a life-shaping work, which if you have a thousand kids sitting in a room, it's probably not going to be that. That's, again, not how Jesus did it. He did the small group thing, and we're here. So... I think that we need to remember the value of small. We've lost the value of small. And we need to remember that the church is a living body. It's not a denomination. It's not a building. It's not fame. It's a living body where all parts follow the head and do so by demonstrating the character of the head so that the word is yet again made flesh. That's a, that's a good word. And, and uh, I hope the folks who are listening hear that, those, those wise words about the size of our ministries and the blessedness that is there in small when we're able to go deep with maybe a smaller group of people and really invest in their lives and then also the call there, uh, wisely stated again, to live uh, to the glory of the head and and live into getting to know the head of the church, Jesus Christ. So thank you. Do you have anything else you're working on now that you're writing? (laughs) Anything that's not top secret? uh, Yes, I have some things twirling around. I still need to recover from this one, but that's first. Yes, I feel your pain there. I felt that before, too. You know, people say, what are you you writing now? And you just go, nothing. 
Right. Uh, but there's, no, there's, I, I work in my head for oh, a long I know, time. I know. Shows up, yeah, so. I have little post-it notes all over my desk and file folders with titles and notes, and they sit there, right? You know, they get added to every now and then. But I'm, I look forward to what's next. So uh, <laughs> thank you for what you've done here. And, again, I want to recommend this book, Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church. And let me just say, it's, it's, it, this would be a great book for your church board, your elder board, uh, to read together, for your staff to read together, uh, because it is addressing issues that need to be addressed in today's world. So, well, we will thank everybody for joining us. Chris, thanks for running the show here behind the scenes and making sure people can hear us. Uh, Teodora, our intern, has been here taking copious notes. We'll wait for her book in a few years, I'm sure. <laughs> and uh, Jason, thanks for coming in. And Diane, Uh, Again, thank you for what you do and for joining us. And so uh, we'll say goodbye to everybody, and we'll see you on the next episode of Youth Culture Matters. Thanks for joining us for Youth Culture Matters, a podcast from the Center for Parent Youth Understanding. If you'd like to learn more about today's youth culture, visit our website at cpyu.org. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, email us at podcast at cpyu.org.